Father in heaven, those words are powerful encouragement, and I pray we will receive them, not just in our ears, but also in our hearts, and believe that if we wait on you, we can renew our strength, that we will trust in those times of trial. And as we turn our, our minds to your word, Lord, speak that same message to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've reached the final Sabbath of our opening series for this year, entitled Banner Year. It's been an interesting series because it's taken us to some places we might not normally have gone. We've used some texts as our key texts that we might otherwise never have used. It was kind of an arbitrary approach we took, but what an amazing thing has been uncovered in God's Word through the doing of this. Uh, we chose texts that have the word banner in them. And that has taken us all over the place, but, but I don't know if you notice this, we've been in the Old Testament really the whole time this first part of the year on a lot of texts we normally wouldn't have used, yet God has met us in each of these texts, and we have found the grace that is ours through Jesus in all of them, which is an important reminder to me. It heightens my awareness of the importance of each of us having a regular daily Bible reading plan that has some sort of a systematic nature to it. And here's the reason. Because if we don't have some sort of systematic approach, we'll always read the same stuff. We'll go to those places, well, I like this, well, this makes sense to me, and we'll completely skip over whole sections of the Bible. You might have never read any of those texts that we have been through earlier this year if you did not have a systematic plan. So I want to say to you that one of the things that can help this year be a banner year is if you will embrace and be faithful to some sort of a systematic Bible reading process that will take you through the whole book. Now I don't want to just exhort you and not give you any access to any kind of resource at all. I'm not saying you need to do it the way I do it, but let me tell you what I do. Uh, back when we were living in Yakima, I began following a plan called the Life Journal Bible Reading Plan. And if you wanted to see what it was, you, it's easy enough to find. You just go on a search engine and type Life Journal and then follow the link that says lifejournal.cc and you'll see this web page come up. Now, I, you don't have to use this at all, but you can see the plan I use there. And it's a plan that has daily readings and a journaling, a way to do some journaling each day to help those readings stick, and uh, it takes you through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice each year. So now I've been doing this for 13 or 14 years. So you think about that and the impact that has over time of getting you through the whole of the Bible. The, the first year you might think, oh wow, I've never read any of this, this is crazy. But after you do it a few years, the Lord's Word really takes root in your heart. So I really want to encourage you to take the long view on that and participate in some sort of a Bible reading plan. It will lay a foundation in your life that's solid that you can build on with your life. So, as I mentioned a second ago, this is the last week of banner year. Next Sabbath, as we get into the month of March, we'll be starting our spring series, March and April, and that's the series where we do up small group studies and encourage you all to participate in groups during that time. Now, the groups won't start next week. It'll be the week after that. There's only going to be six weeks of study this time, so I want to encourage you, if you've been a part of a group, start getting organized and getting your groups back together 
for this time. If you haven't been a part of a group at all, Pastor Steve has access to resources that can help you. So get in touch with Pastor Steve. Get in touch with the office. We'll try to get you a part of a group. We study before each Sabbath the topic we're going to be looking at, and then that Sabbath we talk about it here at church. It's going to be a neat series, but I'm not going to give any more away than that until next Sabbath. So make sure you're here for the introduction to that series. This is the heads up for those of you that have been in my Tuesday night small group. We will start again a week from Tuesday, March 7. So be ready for that at 7 o'clock. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have one more banner to consider. And this one we find in Psalm chapter 60. Now I'm going to begin in verse 1 and just read. Have you rejected us, God? You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner. There's our banner. You have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Now, we all live here, or at least most of us, live here in relative peace in central Florida. And because of that, and maybe you've never thought of that, because we live in relative peace here in central Florida, sometimes that truth makes the Bible a little hard for us to understand. Have you ever thought about that before? That the relative security of our lives contrasts so dramatically from the situation that very often was encountered in the time of the Bible that it makes it difficult for us to read the words and understand the emotion that was taking place in the hearts of the people at the time these scriptures were written. Now, understand, that isn't necessarily true for everyone in the world right now, is it? We're living in relative security, but there are places in the world, like, say, Syria, for example, where what I just read you doesn't just sound like hyperbole, like extra words. That's a description of life right now. And we don't always grasp it because we don't live in times like that. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. Now, of course, war, like in Syria, is one of the things that creates this kind of dislocation, but that's not the only thing that can. And in fact, in this passage, the imagery in this passage is like that of an earthquake. The land has been shaken and torn apart. And we don't really have earthquakes here in Florida. This is a pretty seismically stable area, but we do have tropical storms, so maybe that's a kind of thing. Yet, as we're looking specifically at Psalm 60, and as we're trying to put ourselves in the mindset of the time it was written, the dislocation being talked about here isn't natural disaster or, or some sort of generalized thing, but in fact, Psalm 60 is referring very directly, I believe, to the reality of warfare. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's two reasons I say that, really. The second reason is because, the la because of the language contained in the rest of this psalm. But the first reason that I want to suggest to you this psalm is written in the context of active warfare is found 
in the part of the psalm that we skipped when we started in verse 1. Okay, does that sound a little strange? Now, this is something interesting we discover about the psalms. You see, many of the psalms have what's called a superscript, a short piece written for the purpose of explaining the authorship or the context or in many cases some sort of indication as to what kind of a song that psalm is or how it should be sung. Now we don't have a great deal of time to spend on this, but I do want to give you a couple examples of superscripts that you can find really easily. So I want you to grab that Bible that's right in front of you, that blue Bible in front of you, and open it to Psalm chapter 3. And I want to give you some examples of what I mean when I say superscript. Now, if you look at Psalm 3, you'll see Psalm 3 written, and then down below where the verse starts, where we would normally start reading. But you'll also notice you're looking there, some small script right above that. Yeah, those for those of you up there, that's right there. All right. I don't know if you ever noticed that, if you ever took time to look at it, but I just want to read you a few here. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Well, that's pretty useful information, isn't it? For when you read this psalm, you know that story. That's going to give you a powerful context. Psalm 4, for the director of music. So that means this is addressed to the Pastor Evan of those days. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a song of David. So we want to do Psalm 4 with a stringed instrument. Psalm 5, for the director of music for flutes, a psalm of David. Psalm 6, for the director of music with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Well, here's the thing. Nobody's actually sure what Sheminith means anymore. It's probably a musical term of some kind. Uh, psalm 7, a Shigion of David. Now, again, either a literary or a musical term, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. You can get some interesting information here, can't you? Psalm 8. For the director of music, according to Gittith. Well, we're not sure what that is either. A psalm of David. Psalm 9. For the director of music, to the tune of the death of the sun. You remember that one, right? Maybe not. A psalm of David. So you see this interesting information that's been included here. So where in the world do these superscripts come from? If you were to just take your Bible and turn over to another section in here, you would see on that page it's broken into subsections with chapter titles and so forth. All right, that's given so that you can more easily find text you're looking for and themes and so forth. But those chapter titles and those subheadings, they're not in the original text. That's just something that's been added later on to help you organize it. But it's different in the Psalms. And you'll see in your Bible, the superscripts are in different kind of type. The superscripts are a part of the original text. Now, that doesn't mean that the one who wrote the poem or wrote the song actually wrote the superscript. In all likelihood, it was written and added by somebody else who was putting a context to that poem. But we know that these superscripts were associated with these psalms at least 200 years before the time of Jesus. And the reason we know that is because all of these superscripts appear in what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written sometime between 300 and 200 B.C. 
by a number of Jewish scholars who also knew Greek, and they wrote it all out. And when they wrote the Septuagint, they wrote these superscripts with each of these psalms. So we know for sure that whatever they were using at that time had these included. In addition, they probably go back way before that because when the Septuagint translation was done, some of these words, they'd already lost track of the meaning. They didn't know what they meant even in the time of Jesus. So these have been associated with these psalms for a long time. So that gives them credibility even if they weren't written by the one who wrote the psalm itself. Uh, if, you, if that seems a little strange to you, actually our hymnal is exactly the same way. If you open up the hymnal, you'll see songs in there, and you'll see the words of the songs, and that's what we usually look at. But did you ever notice that up to the left, there's almost always a name? That's a superscript. That's the name of the author of the poem. And up to the right, there's usually the name of the person who wrote the tune, as well as a, a meter or something up there to help you sing it. And then there's often postscripts at the bottom of the page. So this idea is not uncommon. And I just bring it out to you so that you'll realize when you're reading the Psalms, this was a song book. And it's written very much like a song book. All right, so, so why did I take the time on this? Well, it's because the passage we're looking at today, Psalm chapter 60, is a psalm with a superscript. In fact, it's a song with a super superscript because it's one of the longest superscripts of any psalm at all. So that's why I say to you, we read those verses, but the understanding of their context comes before that. So I want to take you to the superscript of Psalm 60 and give you the context for the words I read you. So here we go. Psalm 60, superscript. This is what we skipped when we started in verse 1. For the director of music... To the tune of the lily of the covenant. I wonder what that sounded like. That sounds nice, doesn't it? A miktam, that's another one of those terms that we're not exactly sure what it meant, of David for teaching when he fought Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. There's tons of information there, isn't there? We know the tune or we would if we knew the tune. It's a miktam. We don't know exactly what a miktam is, but it's attributed to David. And then this is interesting. For teaching. The purpose of this psalm is to teach us something. For teaching. And then comes the warfare details. The reason I say to you, I believe this psalm is written in the context of literal combat between peoples. Now, it mentions Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah. If you were to look up those names in the Old Testament, you'll find examples of each. It's a little harder to find Aram Zobah, but you can find Zobah easily enough. And Aram Naharim actually shows up quite a few times. The first time it shows up is actually in Genesis chapter 24. Now, I'm going to read you the context of where it is, and you'll recognize this story. Genesis 24, verse 1, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. 
I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. All right, so you remember this story. And this ultimately will lead to the servant finding Rebekah and bringing her back, and she becomes Isaac's wife. Now, what does that have to do with Aram Naharaim? We'll look at verse 10 of Genesis 24. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. So Aram Naharaim is the region that Abraham came from. You know, he traveled with his father Terah, and they stayed in an area there called Haran until his father died, and then Abraham set out from there. That was Aram Naharaim. Well, where was it? All right, well, I have a map here, and it's not perfect, particularly if you're in the back row, but you can take a look here. Now, down in that right-hand corner in that square, that's a picture of the Middle East that includes Israel there, and you see Turkey at the top and the Mediterranean Sea, and then down the other way, you see that dark green area. That's the Mesopotamia between the lower Mesopotamia between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. There's a red box on there. And what you see in the larger picture is what's in that red box. That is Aram Naharaim. It's northwestern Mesopotamia. So the blue line on the bottom is the Euphrates River. The blue line on the top is the Tigris River. That's where Abraham was and came from. Now we find another mention of Aram Naharaim, but not really a positive one. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 3 no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam son of Beor from Pethor in Aram Naharaim to pronounce a curse on you. So this is where Balaam came from. There's another mention in Judges where there's a war. And the youngest son, of, the youngest brother of Caleb, Othniel, fights against Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. So you read over that word and it means nothing at all to you. But had you been in Israel and you read Aram Naharaim, a whole history would form in your mind. As for Zobah, it's a little harder to find Aram Zobah, but it seems to have been the region that was uh, just on this side of the Euphrates River from Aram Naharaim. So I have another little map there you can look at. That light pink up at the top, that's Aram Zobah. Does it help you to know that these are real places and these are real things? So we can at least get a clear geographical notion of what David's talking about in the writing of this. And it would probably be pretty easy to identify exactly what fight this was about, except for one inclusion. You see, there's one fight where the men of Aram Naharaim come and try to help the Ammonites, and that kind of seems like the story because it seemed like a, a near thing for the, Israeli, for the Israelite army. It looked like they might lose. But there's another inclusion in this that makes me think it's talking about a different encounter. And that's the last part, that bit about the destruction of Edom in the Valley of Salt. First Chronicles chapter 18. 
tells a story. And it goes like this. It's a story of the the conquests of David. It starts in verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadazizer, king of Zobah, there's Zobah, in the vicinity of Hamath when he went to set up his monument at the Euphrates River. Well, we saw that on the map, didn't we? David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadazizer, king of Zobar, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought him tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. All right, so we've got the right region. We've got named some of the right people in this fight. But you know, you read that. It's a little hard to get the sense of this. Psalm 60, verse 1, you have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. And I would be tempted to dismiss this account as not what the psalm is referencing were it not for the words that are found just a little bit later in 1 Chronicles 18, verse 12 says, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now there's a parallel to this in 2 Samuel 8. Verse 13, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So let's go back to the superscript. For the director of music, to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a miktam of David for teaching. When he fought Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. All right. So, so it all fits except there's some details, right, that are a little troubling. For, for example, in, in Samuel and Chronicles, it's 18,000 Edomites, and in the superscript, it's 12,000. And then did you notice that the victory is attributed to different people each time? It's Abishai in Chronicles, David and Samuel, and Joab in the superscript. But here's the thing, and, and it kind of speaks to the messiness of how history is told. Abishai was Joab's younger brother and one of the generals under Joab, and they were all under David. So you could say a victory by Abishai was a victory by Joab, was a victory by David, couldn't you? It just kind of depends on how you look at it. And in terms of getting the casualty count right, you know, I don't think we would hold each other to that same standard, would we? So it seems to me that it's awfully hard to not see these as the stories depicted in this superscript. Now, I suppose one lesson we can take from the telling of that story, because you see in Chronicles, it's just a basic telling of the victories of David. Yet in this psalm, we read a lot of angst. And I suppose one of the things we can take from this is that sometimes a victory when we're in the midst of it seems incredibly difficult, and something we would write about it at that time might be forgotten about later, and that victory itself might just kind of be anecdotal and just mentioned. I'll give you an example. 
Maybe it's a little like this. Once the American states were colonies of England, but the states eventually won independence. That's true, right? But I kind of left out some details, didn't I? When I tell it that way, it seems like, well, obviously they won. But if I told you the story of the winter at Valley Forge, you might say, how in the world did they win? Or how about this one? Once slavery was legal in some states, but there was a civil war and slavery was outlawed in every state. Oh, how nice, and we just bounce along, right? We're kind of leaving out some details there, aren't we? It's certainly not untrue, but it's also shockingly incomplete to say it that way, isn't it? Incomplete for the fact that the statement is made wholly out of the context of those who experienced the negative side of those simple words. Psalm 60, verse 1, describes the negative side of war. You have rejected us, God, and burst upon us. You have been angry, now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. So this is the plea of the people in the midst of a time of war for deliverance. So what would deliverance look like? This is deliverance in the context of fighting, in the context of literal enemies with weapons who want to kill you. Here it is. This is God's answer. Verse 6. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. All right, we hear that. But let me tell you what's powerful about that. In this section of the song, God speaks. And his words are nothing short of a complete affirmation of the original promise to Abraham. Did you catch it? He says, Shechem. He mentions Shechem. He says, Shechem, I will parcel out Shechem. Do you remember Shechem in the history of Israel? When Jacob first came back to the land with his family, one of the first places they settled was Shechem. But they settled as strangers in the land. And here is God saying, that place where you were strangers, I will give you. And Sukkoth gets mentioned, the valley of Sukkoth. That's one of the places where Jacob camped as a stranger. But God had promised the whole of it to the people. And he says, this I will give you. And then he goes on, a specific mention of Gilead. That's an area to the northern part, kind of up in the region of Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah. And he said, Gilead will be yours. And then he goes on. The area of Gilead had the tribe of Gad and Manasseh. And then he says this, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet. What's powerful here is this is a literal paraphrase. I guess it can't be a literal paraphrase, can it? This is a paraphrase 
of what Jacob said to Joseph. Do you remember that story? Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his father. And his father crosses his arms and blesses them. And he says, Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. That's why their names are up here on the banners. They're not literally the sons of Jacob, but Jacob took them as his own. Well, now God is taking Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. He's using the same words as Jacob. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. And then this one, Judah is my scepter. Just before Jacob died, he called all his sons in. And he spoke final words of blessing on them. And he said to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Do you see how these two verses are nothing short of God's reaffirmation of his promises to the patriarchs that he will deliver the people and give them the land? These are powerful words. God continues, verse 8, and we might be uncomfortable with verse 8. Moab is my wash basin. On Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Well, these are harsh words. Or at least they're words that sound harsh to our ears. But you've got to remember the context. The context of this psalm is the people of God facing the risk of annihilation from the nations around them. What you need to understand about Moab, Edom, and the Philistines is that they have set themselves, themselves against God's purpose in Israel. Now I want to ask you, what happens to any people or any nation or any church that sets itself against God's purpose? God overthrows it. And understand the context here. God is affirming His promise to the patriarchs and He is removing everything that stands in the way. And the people hear these words of the Lord. And in these words, the memory of the promises of God to the patriarchs causes them to refine their place and re-understand their condition if left to themselves. And this is what the last part of the psalm says. Verse 9, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God? You who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Who can take us where we need to go? No one but God. Therefore, God, please help us. And verse 12, the words of faith, with God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. It's a miktam of David, a psalm of teaching written in the context of God's deliverance in a time of war. So, okay, psalm of teaching. Did you learn anything? Well, we got some history, got a little geography, but you know what? The primary point of this is not history or geography. There's something more. 
And I think we find the heart of it in verses 3 through 5. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. So this context of war is a great illustrative background for the words, but these words are pretty universal, aren't they? Have you ever known desperate times? Here's the good news. Here's the gospel in the song. God has raised up a banner to save all who put their hope in him from every foe. In the literal sense of this psalm, the banner represents God's providential intervention to the helplessness and hopelessness of the people. But in the larger sense, isn't the true fulfillment of this concept hinted at here, isn't the true fulfillment the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Isn't he truly the banner that when unfurled saves us from every danger that would destroy our lives, not just now but forever? Jesus once said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's the banner. And all who put their hope in him will be saved from all your enemies, no matter how tough they seem. Who's your Moab? Because that's his wash basin. Who's your Edom? That's his shoe rack. Who's your Philistia? Get ready to shout victory over it. Why? Why does God bring deliverance to his people? The psalm tells us. Verse 5, save us, the people cry, and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. What's his answer? You know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his right hand, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A psalm of teaching. A recognition of our plight. A remembering of God's promise. And a statement of faithfulness that he will deliver as he has said. There's only one way to make this year a banner year. And that's to commit your life to Jesus. The banner of salvation that God has raised up for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have truly spoken in your word and given us courage today that reminds us that you will fulfill your promises. That you have in Jesus saved us and raised a banner to the nations. And that all who put their trust in him need not fear the bow or any of the trials of this life. For you will be victorious, and you will bring your people into your kingdom forever. This is our faith and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.